Hello everyone, and welcome back to the History of Africa podcast. I'm your host, Andy. Last episode, we took a break from our narrative surrounding the life of Rolambo of Amerina to learn more about Sakalava, the rising regional power on Madagascar's west coast. Today, these two seemingly distinct histories will merge together, as a Sakalava raiding party invades Imerina, marking the first serious challenge to Rolambo's rule. Season 4, Episode 7, Rolambo's Wars One day in the 1620s AD, a frightening sight appeared in Imerina, a raiding party from the Sakalava kingdom. Sakalava, under the effective leadership of their king Andrea Misar, rapidly expanded to consolidate control over much of western Madagascar. Even further inland, the armies of Andrea Misara extracted significant sums of tribute from their highland neighbors. While the Merina had been far enough inland to be spared from this initial campaign of expansion, the paths of the two kingdoms were now coming dangerously close to intersecting. And suddenly one day, the raiding party appeared. While the Tantara does not explicitly state the Sakalava's intention in their foray, the Sakalava penchant for raiding to extract tribute gives us a hint to their probable reason for invasion. If the Sakalava could secure victory over their smaller inland neighbor, it would guarantee that Imerina would join the growing list of sources of Sakalava wealth. Given that the Merina had little offer to the Sakalava besides, well, themselves, we can assume that this tribute would almost certainly be paid in the form of enslaved workers, either to be sold to merchants in exchange for other goods, or to be put to work as enslaved labor on domestic Sakalava projects. Compared to their Sakalava enemies, the Merina were tremendous underdogs. While the Sakalava controlled the resources and manpower of a vast state, Merina, in practice, consisted of only a small series of villages surrounding the capital city of Alasora, as well as the territory of Ambohitrabidi, the lands which Andrea Manello inherited through a marriage with a local queen. This puny highland kingdom could certainly not challenge the might of the rising Sakalava. Now, it goes without saying that the coming war between Imerina and Sakalava are almost certainly a mythologized version of real events. On this podcast, I normally strive to avoid euhemerism, or trying to reconstruct history through analysis of mythology. And, as we'll see pretty clearly, much of the history surrounding Rolambu's war with the Sakalava are heavily, heavily mythologized. I think this is a bit of a special case, though, given that, while the specific events of the story are quite clearly mythological in nature, there is some pretty good corroborating evidence for the basic premise of events occurring. So before we get into sussing out the story's details, let's start with a straightforward recounting of the Merina mythology surrounding the Sakalava invasions of the 1620s. The Tantara's narrative of the war begins with Rolambo receiving news that a Sakalava army was marching into the highlands, heading straight towards his kingdom. To make matters even more dire, one of the Fasimba kingdoms near Emerina, centered in a town called Merinkasinina, decided to join the Sakalava in their campaign against Rolambo. While certainly less prominent than their Sakalava allies, these Fasimba forces were nothing to sneeze at. Their king was particularly feared as a warrior, allegedly even possessing the ability to control lightning itself. But Rolambo, our protagonist, remains cool and collected even in the face of such obviously insurmountable odds. Since Rolambo's rise to the throne, 
he had gone out of his way to ensure that Imerina was no ordinary petty kingdom that the Sakalava could trample. The king had spent the last several years of his rule securing access to a unique arsenal of key magical objects, the Sampie. So, while the Sakalava had a track record of success, a larger army, soldiers equipped with firearms acquired from European merchants, and an ally who could summon power from the heavens themselves, Ralambo could boast that his kingdom was safe under the protection of much more powerful supernatural forces. As long as the Sampie were in his corner, no harm could come to Imerina. Ralambo's messengers warned him that the Sakalava were rapidly approaching the capital and were starting to set up camp just outside the city's defenses. Of course, the ever-cool Merina king, confident in the power of his Sampi, responded brazenly. Let them come. Kelly Malaza tells me that if I throw a rotten egg at them, he will take care of the rest. Not one enemy will escape us. Ralambo wasn't speaking figuratively here. That night, as the Sakalava marched on Alasora, Ralambo went out to meet them with a small crew of bodyguards. Armed with a rotten egg in his hand, and the powerful Sampie Kelimelasa at his side, the Sakalava didn't stand a chance. In a frankly hilarious description of events, the Sakalava, armed with iron-tipped barbed spears, lined up in their marching formation and began to advance towards Ralambo in a single-file line. Ralambo clutching the raw neg, pulled back his arm and chucked the ovum with all the force he could muster. The egg squarely hit the Sakalava commander, standing at the front of his army in the head, knocking him backwards and impaling him onto the spear of his compatriot standing behind him. That Sakalava soldier, caught off balance by his commander falling onto his spear, himself fell backwards into his allies. The result was like a deadly chain of falling dominoes a bloody Looney Tunes-esque display of carnage. With just one rotten egg and the power of his trusted Sampie Kelimilasa, hundreds of the best and strongest Sakalava fighters lay dead. While Ralambo had long promoted the power and legitimacy provided to him by the Sampie, the success which Kelimilasa brought to him at the soon-to-be-renowned Battle of the Rotten Egg was the final push that turned the Sampie, and Kelimilasa in particular, into universally acclaimed objects of veneration in Imerina. Despite this setback, the Sakalava did not abandon their effort to subdue the Merina. While the first army defeated by Ralambu was, in essence, more of a raiding party, the enraged Sakalava monarch, upon hearing the news of the Battle of the Rotten Egg, decided to muster a proper army to make a second strike at his Hofa enemies. This time, the Sakalava found considerably more success. The new, larger, and better-equipped Sakalava army swept the Merina out of their northern territories, capturing and besieging all of the fortified villages north of Alasora. Now, part of the Sakalava success, and something that I can't believe I forgot to mention in the last episode on the Sakalava, can be attributed to their unique reliance on nighttime ambushes. The tactic employed by Sakalava commanders was a simple but effective one. During the day, the Sakalava army would hide, finding a secure place to rest up where their enemies couldn't find them. The enemy army, active during the day, would then march around looking for their foe to fight them in a fish battle, and then tire themselves out. Then, after the sun went down, and the enemy went to sleep for the night, the Sakalava sprang their trap. 
with the rested and spry Sakalava dominating their exhausted and caught-off-guard enemies. According to the Tantara, though, Relambu actually foresaw the Sakalava tactics, and found a way to successfully counter them. Upon consulting the wisdom of Kelly Malasa, Relambu learned of the Sakalava tactic of nighttime ambushes, and therefore ordered his army not to march in a group looking for the Sakalava army to fight in a pitched battle. Rather, he divided his army into numerous smaller forces, which fanned out to look for the Sakalava hiding place. Eventually, one of these scouts discovered the hidden Sakalava camp. Now that their enemies were found, Rolambo recoalesced his men, and they descended on the sleeping Sakalava, obliterating the Sakalava army with a reversal of their own tactic. The location of this battle is, to this day, known as Mandamako, or Lazy Men, due to the legendary ambush that Rolambo led at the site. After now losing two armies in devastating fashion, the Sakalava king decided to cut his losses, and gave up on his ambition of conquering Imerina. He would send no more armies to the highlands, and instead left his Fasimba armies to fight the Merina on their own. Now that the Sakalava were gone, the early battles against the Fasimba went decisively in Rolambu's favor. In one case, Rolambu's soldiers used firearms that they either purchased or captured from his former Sakalava enemies. The Fasimba, totally unfamiliar with this novel weapon, were sent into a deadly panic. During the battle, much of the Fasimba army was so terrified by the loud blasts of the Marina muskets that they fled into a nearby swamp and drowned. With his army in tatters, the king of Marin Casinina was forced to withdraw his remaining soldiers back to his hometown. Despite being defeated in battle and diplomatically isolated, the Fasimba of Marin Casinina continued to put up stiff resistance against Ralambo. Their village was well fortified, with deep ditches and high walls. Despite multiple valiant assaults, Medin Casinina proved to be a nut that refused to crack, no matter what Rolambu threw at it. Dismayed at his multiple failed efforts to overcome the seemingly invincible fortress, Rolambu decided to take a new approach. Again, he prayed to Kelly Melasa, and the holy object advised him that, if Medin Casinina was invincible in the face of force, that Rolambu could only defeat his enemy using his wit. Hatching a plan, Urelambu recruited the aid of one of his generals. This general would soon approach the Fasimba fortress with a message for the king of Medin Casinina. Pretending to be a defector from the Medina army, the general informed the Fasimba king that Urelambu, having gone mad from his previous failed attempts to take over the fortress, was now demanding that the Fasimba king face him in single combat at a neutral site several dozen miles south of Alasora. Of course, when this general heard the news that King Rolambo was daring to challenge such a powerful ruler, a legendary warrior who could control the force of lightning itself, eh, he could no longer tolerate his king's foolishness, and thus defected to what would clearly end up being the winning side. The Fasimba king, with his ego sufficiently fellated, took the bait and accepted Rolambo's challenge in single combat traveling south of his army to meet Ralambo for the final showdown. However, the moment that the Fasimba king left his fortified position and started on his trek south, Ralambo's general revealed his true intentions, and set fire to Merin Casinina's walls, which quickly spread to many of the interior buildings. In the blazing chaos, 
when Alambo and his army pounced and finally captured the smoldering remains of the town. The Fasimba king, infuriated at the deception but powerless to do anything about it, was forced to flee east into the Sakalava kingdom. His kingdom was now destroyed, though he and his descendants would remain steadfast enemies of the Merina for the rest of time. Now, with all that said, the extent to which Rolambo's war with the Sakalava and Fasimba represent real historical events is difficult to say. Now, the basic premise of the story, that there was an armed conflict between the Sakalava and Merina during the rule of Rolambo, is almost certainly true. There are ample references to such a conflict not only in the oral histories of the Merina, but also among the Sakalava. The Sakalava oral histories, though, acknowledge little else about the conflict beyond its existence, depicting it as a fairly routine and marginal chapter in the early history of the kingdom. There is no mention of entire armies wiped out by rotten eggs or ambushed while they slept during the day. Now, this doesn't necessarily detract from these stories, as it would be totally plausible that Sakalava oral histories would be kinda embarrassed by these defeats and therefore aim to minimize their memory. We'll be back after a quick break. How are University of Notre Dame faculty and students working to be a force for good in the world? Listen to Notre Dame stories to find out. Through expert interviews and captivating stories, listeners gain an inside perspective on the global and domestic challenges the university is working to solve. Subscribe to Notre Dame Stories wherever you get your podcasts. These narratives' absence in Sakalava histories is worth noting regardless, though. Honestly, the biggest issue with taking these stories seriously is, well, the stories themselves. While most of the battles and developments seem plausible enough, the story of the Battle of the Rotten Egg in particular is just simply too ridiculous to take seriously. So, while the stories of Rolambu's wars might have some basis in real, material events, I think it's obviously necessary to be skeptical of many of its elements. In any case, though, the stories are still very revealing about certain aspects of Merina government, even in this early stage of the kingdom. Notably, there is a common element in every battle referenced, which is that very little of the success is actually credited to Rolambu himself. In each battle, it is not Rolambu himself who independently comes up with any of the ingenious methods that he uses to defeat his seemingly insurmountable foes. Rather, it is the Sampi. Kalimalasa, every single time, without fail. Whether it's the decision to knock over Sakalava soldiers using a rotten egg, or the choice to scout out the Sakalava daytime camp, or the plot to trick the king of Medin Kasinina into abandoning his fortified position, all of these ideas originated not from Arlambo, but from the venerated metallic object wrapped in banana leaves. So, that's weird, right? You would think that the official oral histories of the Medina people preserved by royal courtiers and historians, would go out of their way to make their historical kings and ancestors look as cunning, intelligent, and just generally good as possible, right? Well, that's not quite the case here. The decision to attribute Rolambo's martial success to the advice of his Sampier might seem strange from the perspective of foreigners, but actually makes a lot of sense in the context of the Merina state. While Rolambo was undeniably a brilliant ruler, 
He was, at the end of the day, just a human being, a mortal individual who would one day die. Sure, as long as Zerlambu was alive, his state would be viewed as prestigious and legitimate. Nobody in their right mind would question Zerlambu's right to rule after his repelling of the Sakalava, right? But what about when he's gone? Would the Hofa afford the same respect and prestige to his children, or his grandchildren, and then his great-grandchildren? After all, they had never repelled such an invasion. They had never conquered impregnable forces. But with the decision to attribute Ralambo's successes not to his own person, but rather to the immortal object of Kelly Malasa, the Merina historical records guaranteed that his prestige and achievements were passed on to the next generation. While his children themselves maybe hadn't repelled an invasion, they, just like Ralambo, were advised and protected by the Sampie, which had. While we don't know if it was Zerlambu himself, or simply later Merina historians who made the forward-facing decision to attribute the king's success to the Saint-Pierre, we do know that he was the type of person to consider and prepare for the seemingly distant future. Particularly, Zerlambu went out of his way to ensure that his sons were given ample leadership experience before they were given political power, a luxury which Zerlambu's father had never given to him. Going back to our episode on the earlier life of Zerlambu, the king of Imerna had broken his kingdom's tradition of monogamy by having many sons with multiple different women. However, it was only the two sons he had sired with his cousin who were considered legitimate heirs to his kingdom. Andrian Pampoko Indrindra was the elder son, and was therefore set to inherit the kingship after Rolambo's passing, while Andrian Jaka, the younger son, had the honor of producing the heir who would succeed his brother. Though they were brothers the two young men couldn't have possibly possessed more distinct personalities. Andrian Jaka, despite being the younger of the two, was significantly more mature than his brother. He is generally depicted as responsible, charismatic, creative, and far more interested in the affairs of the kingdom than his brother was, despite the fact that he wasn't even set to inherit the throne. Andrian Tampoco Indrindra, on the other hand, was... How can I put this? He was a gamer. Yes, really. Apparently, the elder son had no interest in the affairs of state. Rather, he had an intense interest in the game of Fanorona, a two-player strategy board game often compared to chess, checkers, or go. Andrian Tompoku Indrindra was, apparently, possessed by much more than a passing interest in the game. If we believe the Tantara's description of events, then the elder brother fits with what we would probably today call a gaming addict often prioritizing his gameplay over basic social duties and personal responsibilities. While certainly this is an undesirable circumstance for anyone to be in, the problem here was especially severe when you consider that this is the man who, by the law of organized succession, would next rule a Merina. While the victory over the Sakalava guaranteed a brief Pacific era, the tranquility would not last forever. Soon, a new enemy emerged a coalition of two people groups who lived north of Imerina, Debesanusanu and Sihanaka, launched a surprise attack on the northeast major city in Imerina, the home of Ralambu's mother, Ambohit Rabibi. The city, which by this point in time was Ralambu's permanent home, and by extension the de facto capital of his kingdom, was suddenly swarmed by hostile soldiers. Fortunately, the city was well fortified, surrounded by a tough wall and considerable ditch, 
So Orlambu just barely managed to hold his enemies back from capturing the town, despite being dramatically outnumbered. In desperate need of reinforcements, Orlambu sent out messengers to contact his sons, demanding that they come and help him as soon as they could. Andrei and Jaka, of course, sprung into action, raising an army and marching on Ambohitrabibi with utmost speed. Andrei Antompoku Indrinda, on the other hand, uh, didn't really give a crap. He basically told the messengers that he couldn't help his father since he was in the middle of a game of Fanarona. When the messengers reiterated the importance of his help and that this was a matter of life and death, the elder son responded by passive-aggressively reciting each move he made in an effort to annoy the messengers so much that they just left him alone. It worked. Andrean Jaka arrived at Ambuhitrabibi right in the nick of time. Severely outnumbered, even with the fresh reinforcements, Ralambu and Andrean Jaka had to think of a creative way to win the day. It was Andrean Jaka who eventually came up with the million-dollar idea. He and his men would set a trap in the town ditch. At the bottom of the ditch, they set a fire, using cow dung and rice holes as their fuel. The fire was then covered with a thick pile of ashes to conceal the flames beneath. When the Sihanaka and Besanosano saw the hot ash, they would figure that it was probably just the Merina trying to create fertile soil by burning foliage for its nutrients, so they could restock their food supply. A logical enough assumption to make. Finally, Rolambo and Andreanjaka set the bait. They withdrew their troops from the city walls, hiding in the town's citadel and opening up their defenses to enemy assault. This was a very risky maneuver. If Andreanjaka's trap failed, the walls of the town would be completely vulnerable, and the enemy would surely break through and massacre the Medina trapped inside. And in the moment of truth, the enemy forces charged at the walls, eager to scale the abandoned defenses, and promptly began sinking into the burning ash. As the panicked Sihanaka and Vezansano felt their legs burning, they scrambled to retreat back out of the moat. Some made it out, though with serious burns afflicting their legs. Others collapsed and were immolated entirely. In a panicked retreat, they realized that they were beaten and called off the attack. The Merina seized the opportunity and chased their enemies out of the kingdom, inflicting major casualties along the way. Andrian Jaka's ingenious contribution to the defense of Ambohitrabibi combined with his brother's lackadaisical indifference, forced Rolambo to reconsider the law of organized succession. Regardless of what the law stated, it was clear to everyone that Andrian Jaka would straightforwardly just make a better king. So, Rolambo decided to make yet another revision to the already heavily revised system of organized succession. While his two sons from the line of Andrea Mananitani would still inherit the kingdom, age would no longer be the decisive factor in who ruled as king and who produced the heir. From now on, the king himself would choose which of his sons from the legitimate royal line would inherit the kingdom based on his own judgment. In this case, Andrea Jaka would now rule after Rolambo's passing, while Andrea Tampoco Indrindra was tasked with simply producing the next heir. But before he could publicly announce the decision, Rolambo wanted to institute one final test just to really make sure that he was making the right choice. Or perhaps just because he wanted to see how much he could stress the limits of his elder son's gaming addiction. One day, Rolambo, who was quite elderly by this point in his life, claimed that he had come down with a terminal illness 
and was on the verge of death. Considering his advanced age, such a claim was totally believable. The king sent out two envoys to contact his potential heirs, and tell them that their father was dying. Andrian Jaka, of course, immediately sprang into action and traveled to meet his father as soon as possible. Meanwhile, in the perfect demonstration of the severity of his addiction, Andrian Tampoco Indrindra again refused to get up from his game, even to visit his supposedly dying father. When it was clear that, even when death was on the table, only one child arrived to greet him, Ralambu informed Andrian Jaka that he was certain that his younger son would be the next king. The decision to elevate Andrian Jaka caused little controversy. Even Andrian Tampoco Indrindra himself took little issue with the change. If anything, he was actually a little happy about the choice. Producing a few kids was easy work compared to ruling an entire country, and he surmised that this reduced workload would give him more time to focus on his true passion for Fanorona. With Andrian Jaka now in place to take over for his father, the stage is set for another one of Imerina's most impactful early kings to deliver his own impressive performance. Join us next episode as Andrian Jaka founds the city which will become synonymous with the pride and glory of the Merina kingdom, and which remains the most impressive urban center on the island to this very day, the metropolis of Ntanarifu. Thank you for listening to the History of Africa podcast. If you like the show and the free education we provide, then we would love it if you could support the show. You can do this through supporting us monetarily at patreon.com slash historyofafrica, providing the show with a rating or a view on whichever platform you listen on, or sharing the show with anyone who you think might be interested in learning more about African history. This episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including Naomi Kanakia, Ayo Fagbamie, Morgan Blackmore, Sarah Mpenza, Dimitri, Manuel Zaldi, Alexander Travis, B.B. Milliam, Conrad Schwenke, Travis Bell, Johnny Knowles, Godfrey Sebelavie, Evan Edwards, Pascal Mokocha, Joe Maxwell, Nkechi Nwabadike, Sheuno Lorontimayen, Kwajo Amankwa, Douglas Harder, Craig Bolton, Samuel Badu, and Hassan Fergiani, among others. Thank you all for supporting the show. It really, really, really means a lot.